0: Welcome to Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In May of 1934, outside Hugo, Oklahoma, a homeless man and his 13-year-old daughter are befriended by a Texas drifter, newly released from the federal penitentiary in Leavenworth. The drifter, Clint Palmer, lures father and daughter to Texas, where the father mysteriously disappears, where his daughter Lucille, or Lottie, begins a one-year ordeal that culminates in four Utah killings near Blanding and Palmer's notorious Greenville, Texas, so-called skeleton murder trial of 1935. Chuck Reeves' historical novel, Hard Twisted, tells the true story of Lottie Garrett. The novel imagines Palmer and Lottie's flight through New Mexico and Colorado, their eventual appearance in Blanding, where the outlaws seek employment herding sheep for Monument Valley trading post of impresario Harry Goulding, only to find themselves thrust into a range war with Mormon cattleman William Oliver, the last of the legendary Frontier Laman. And uh, Chuck Greaves says says he uh, considers Lottie Garrett's true saga of survival and redemption one of the great untold stories of the American West. Chuck Reeves is, uh, was born and raised in Levittown, New York. He is an honors graduate of both University of Southern California and Boston College Law School. Spent 25 years as a trial lawyer in Los Angeles before moving to Santa Fe in 2006 to pursue a writing career. Chuck Reeves, welcome to the program.
1: Good morning, Tom. Thanks for having me.
0: Let me let's begin with, uh, it's, it's a pretty dramatic way you came across this story. Maybe tell me about that first.
1: Sure. Uh, Back in 1994, my wife and I were were living in Los Angeles. We were both attorneys there. And we met some friends from Colorado uh, over the Thanksgiving uh, weekend holiday in uh, a little bed and breakfast inn in uh, Valley of the Gods, Utah, not far from uh, Mexican Hat. And our first day there, we went hiking, and we hiked into John's Canyon, which is a remote canyon just west of, of Mexican Hat north of the San Juan River. And toward the end of the day, this was November, it had started to snow. And as we were hiking out of the canyon back toward our car, uh, we stumbled upon uh, two human skulls. And as we crouched down to examine uh, our find, uh, amid the falling snow and the hush that accompanies uh, a a new uh, snowfall, uh, as soon as we bent down to look at them, a thunderclap rolled down the canyon and shook the ground under our feet. And we looked at each other and we said, wow. And, and that discovery is what set me on uh, the course of investigation that would lead about 18 years later to the publication of the novel *Hard
0: Twisted. You eventually found out about what were known as the St. John's Canyon Murders.
1: Correct, the John's Canyon Murders.
0: Yeah. Um, and uh, tell me about, uh, I don't know how to pronounce your last name, Doris... Doris Valley. Doris Valley.
1: Yes, Doris Valley at the time ran the trading post at Mexican Hat. And she was an amateur historian, and she'd written a little uh, pamphlet, self-published book, called Looking Back Around the Hat, uh, which was a history of the area in and around uh, Mexican Hat. And in her book, she had written a small chapter about the Johns Canyon murders of uh, former Sheriff Bill Oliver and his grandson, Norris Shumway, by this Texas drifter named Clint Palmer. And uh, after we made the discovery of the skulls, we reported it to our hosts who ran the bed and breakfast. They referred us to Doris, uh, who said, yes, you're not the first people to find those skulls. She said they're believed to be connected to this double murder that occurred back in 1935, and she gave us a copy of the book. And we read the book, and we were fascinated by the story, and in particular, we were fascinated by the fact that this this 36-year-old drifter from Texas um, had with him a a 13-year-old girl whom he described as his child bride. Um, But it turned out the story was much more complex than that, and it was that aspect of the story, the fact of this 13-year-old girl being on the road with this psychotic killer that really fascinated me, and that's what really prompted me to do the research uh, that led to publication of the book.
0: Tell me first about Clint Palmer. He's, he's described, on his release from Leavenworth, as, uh, what, a menace to society?
1: Uh, he was. Clint Palmer, um, sadly, uh, had, had committed similar crimes at least twice prior to the kidnapping of Lottie Garrett. Uh, he'd been in pr- He'd been a career criminal. He'd been in and out of prison his entire life since he was 18 years old. Um, twice he'd been incarcerated for uh, kidnapping, uh, rape, and violating the Mann Act because twice previously he had kidnapped young girls and taken them on the road. Uh, the last stint he did at Leavenworth was a three-year stint. He was released in uh, early 1934, and it was about two months later that he came upon Uh, Dillard Garrett, uh, a 36-year-old man, and his 13-year-old daughter, Lucille, living by the side of the road in Dust Bowl, Oklahoma. And don't forget, this is the the depths of the Great Depression, 1934. Uh, And so he he befriended this homeless man and his daughter, uh, led them down to Texas, uh, unbeknownst to Lottie, killed Dillard Garrett, decapitated him, uh, hid his body, and then took uh, Lottie on the road.
0: One of the, uh, one of the, I guess, the poignant themes throughout the book, Lott, as you say, Lottie doesn't know that her father's been killed. She just wants to be re- reunited with her father.
1: Exactly. And so um, throughout the book, Clint um, Palmer is promising Lottie that they're going to connect up with her father. And he goes through some elaborate ruses to make her believe that uh, her father is still alive, including at one point writing a letter to her purportedly from her father, but actually from her from Palmer, uh, telling her to go with Palmer and trust him and uh, travel with him to Utah. So, um, at some point, at some point, it must have become clear to her that that her father wasn't coming. But exactly when that point occurred, we don't know. And a good part of the book, of course, because it's a work of fiction uh, and it's being written from the point of view of a thirteen-year-old girl, uh, I had a, a certain amount of artistic license in in um, in recreating what her state of mind might have been throughout her ordeal.
0: Now, you uh, you chose the historical novel form. What, you, you wanted to fill in some gaps that you didn't have. Is that why you chose that?
1: Yeah, you know, when I, when I did the research, I, I was originally thinking it would be nonfiction. But I reached a point where I wanted to start writing, and I realized there were too many gaps in the narrative to really support a work of, of nonfiction. So I wrote it as a novel. And again, I thought that the... The point of view of the 13-year-old girl would be a fascinating way to explore uh, the story and the, and the various, you know, the various states of mind she must have gone through uh, during this one year on the road with her father's killer.
0: But uh, you imposed some rules on yourself. Tell us about that. You, you wanted this to be historically accurate.
1: Absolutely. Uh, so uh, based on the research I had done, I wanted the story to track uh, the record as accurately as possible. Um, I will tell you that after writing the book, I actually did come into the possession of some, some critical documents um, that uh, didn't change the story, but they certainly fleshed out the story in areas where I didn't have any information at the time. Uh, namely, uh, the Utah State History Museum uh, in Salt Lake City, it turned out, uh, had uh, the grand jury testimony of Lottie Garrett, Uh, a witness statement from Harry Goulding, and a statement from Clint Palmer's father, H.P. Palmer, uh, all in their archives, uh, whereas the Texas uh, court system did not have those documents, interestingly enough. Uh, So I came into possession of those later, and those were fascinating for me, having already written the book, uh, because I was basing a uh, a lot of the narrative on Lottie's trial testimony, which was reported extensively in the... Uh, newspapers in Greenville, Texas, during the trial of Clint Palmer for murder. So uh, they, they, they mostly jibed, but again, um, there was uh, uh, a good deal of, informa- of more information in the witness statements, which I wish I had at the time. But nonetheless, what I imposed upon myself was the obligation to, uh, where facts were known, to use those facts and incorporate them into what is otherwise a fictional story.
0: That's interesting. You you uh, I guess the book was pretty much finished before you got these facts. Would you have changed anything? Do you think?
1: Oh, I might have tweaked a thing here mm-hmm. or there. Yeah, but nothing major. Again, I, th- I think the story basically was all there.
0: Yeah. Now you do say the nature of the relationship between Lottie and Clint is you you say problematic, and this is where hard twisted is 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 fiction. You're you're trying to probe this it, just in what you think that relationship was, and it's from the point of view of Lottie.
1: Sure. You know, you had a 13-year-old girl who was being psychologically manipulated by a 36-year-old man who had quite a bit of experience in manipulating young girls. Um, And, you know, today we're we're aware of the Stockholm Syndrome and the idea that uh, sometimes a a captive will uh, come to identify with her captor. Um, Of course, that concept, uh, if it existed at all, Uh, In 1935, um, it certainly didn't seem to come into play uh, in the way the court ended up treating Lottie down in Texas, so we can talk about that in a bit. But um, the idea of this young girl being manipulated by this man, uh, you know, it, 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 it left me as an author with a lot of different ways I could have taken the story. I could have made her an accomplice. I could have made her purely a victim. Uh, There were a lot of ways I could have handled that material, and I chose something of a middle ground. I mean, obviously she was a victim, um, but at some point she came to identify with her captor. She certainly had many, many opportunities to to walk away, to escape, but she never did. And, of course, that's a a classic um, uh, uh, characteristic of the Stockholm Syndrome, Uh, and we've seen it played out uh, tragically uh, in fairly recent history. Mm.
0: You say she definitely, in your mind, was a victim of, of this man and a victim of her upbringing.
1: Yes, you know, she was—her uh, her, her story is quite tragic. She uh, Her father was, was something of an alcoholic and a ne'er-do-well. Uh, her mother died when she was a very young girl. Uh, she lived with her maternal grandparents for a short while, and then she—her custody was switched for some reason that we don't know uh, to her father's brother— she lived with her father's brother for about a year, and then her father returned into her life when she was 10 years old. And then she spent the next two and a half years of her life uh, living a hobo's existence, uh, being homeless with her father, who was himself an alcoholic and had his own issues. So uh, it was by no means a, uh, a traditional upbringing and by no means a, a pleasant upbringing. Uh, and then into her life walks this charismatic uh, cowboy uh, from Texas who promises them food, promises them a job, promises them a brighter future, and of course, uh, with tragic results.
0: And as you, there's a couple of um, scenes in the book where uh, Clint Palmer protects Lottie from you know sexual predators. There's uh, it's it's a hard scrabble world out there. This is one reason why why she may have gone with him.
1: Absolutely, uh, you know, uh, he, he presented a promise of a brighter future to her. A promise that that ended up being alluring enough that that he she would go with him voluntarily first of all, and almost in a sense she had a choice between her father and and him and and in a sense she almost chose him, and the way I wrote the book and again a lot of this was was my um, my uh, authorial input but uh, uh, I wrote it in such a way that um, he represented to her really uh, her, her best hope in a very bleak situation.
0: This is depths of the depression as you as you point out. A lot of uh, economic heartache. There are a lot of people drifting.
1: Absolutely and, uh, and of course they, they themselves drift. They go from uh, from Texas uh, into Santa Fe, New Mexico and there's a, a scene in Santa Fe. They end up in, in uh, Durango, Colorado and they stay there for about two weeks. All of this is historically accurate. Uh, they then proceed uh, to uh, San Juan County, Utah, where they travel from Monticello to Blanding to Bluff and then down into Monument Valley where they hook up with uh, Harry Goulding. And, um, and that's where uh, the, the Utah part of the story takes place. And then they end up, after the double murder in Johns Canyon, they end up uh, traveling back uh, on Route 66 back into Texas. And, of course, by the time they get back to Texas, they're already wanted for the murder of Lottie's. Uh, father, and, and they're both wanted. So the police are looking for both of them at that point.
0: Mm. We're going to take a brief break. When we come back, we'll uh, learn about the Utah portion of this story. Uh, many of us will be interested in that, of course, and uh, some of the research that uh, Chuck Greaves has done. Uh, this era, this place, which will be very interesting to us, it's San Juan County. And, and as, as you're right, Chuck Greaves, this is still today very remote area. And so it's just uh, the the happenstance that uh, one of the legendary lawmen, Sheriff William Oliver, who ended up being a murder victim, this uh, psychotic ex-con Clint Palmer, along with uh, uh, who he's describing as his child bride, Lottie Garrett, should end up in in that area. Um, We'll talk about that following break.
2: Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Festival Opera and Musical Theatre in Logan, Utah. Presenting eight hands, two pianos. July 9th at 1 p.m., featuring four pianists in an afternoon of personality and artistry. Customs, jokes, and piano. Information at utahfestival.org. And cron Brothers Addison Bread in Logan. Open for breakfast on Monday through Friday at 7 a.m. And Saturdays at 8 a.m., featuring Coch Madame and Coq Monsieur made with sourdough bread, ham and cheese. Menu details at cronbrothers.com. BBC. BBC. Hello am Rosakins welcome to World Have Your
0: Say. Coming up on Outlook after the news, the Somali journalist who witnessed the murder of his boss. Hello, I'm Steve Evans. Welcome to Business Daily. Coming up, the big fight.
1: This is Owen Bennett Jones with News Hour.
2: The BBC is your gateway to the world,
0: and this is your BBC station.
1: Monday through Saturday afternoons at three on Utah Public Radio.
0: Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We're talking with Chuck Greaves. We're talking about his historical novel called "Hard Twisted," it tells the true story of thirteen-year-old Lottie Garrett. Uh, she is uh, accompanying a, a psychotic drifter, Clint Palmer, released from Leavenworth. He, unbeknownst to her, has killed her father. They end up in uh, southeastern Utah, San Juan County, near Blanding, and two more murders occur. Uh, uh, We're about to tell that part of the story. Chuck Reeves has taken historical fact from 1934-1935 and uh, made it into a historical novel called Hard Twisted, which, by the way, won the Best Historical Novel in 2010 for the Southwest Writer's Annual Writing Contest. Chuck Greaves uh, was a lawyer for 25 years, trial lawyer in Los Angeles, moved to Santa Fe in 2006 to pursue a writing career. He has several uh, books out. His debut novel, Hush Money, his first installment in the Jack McTaggart series of legal mysteries. And I believe, Chuck Greaves, you have a a couple more in that series coming out?
1: Um, The second book in that series is called Green-Eyed Lady. It came out in June of this year. And the third book in this series is called *The Last Air, H-E-I-R, and that'll be out in June of two uh, thousand fourteen.
0: And that's, I read, a historical novel as well.
1: No, the, the, mm-hmm. those are the legal mysteries.
0: Those are the legal mysteries. Okay. Um, oh, you're currently working on your next historical novel, is this?
1: I am. I'm currently working on a book uh, set in nineteen thirties, nineteen twenties, nineteen thirties New York City. It's a, sort of a it's a it's a mobster story based on true events.
0: What do you, I guess there are pros and cons, writing pure fiction and historical fiction?
1: Yeah, you know, because I write uh, legal mysteries also, I'm used to plotting stories and plotting mysteries, and when you're writing historical fiction, the plotting is sort of done for you, you know, I'm, I'm, so in terms of where the characters begin, where they're going to end up, that's all predetermined. Uh, you have a lot of license, of course, and how they get there and, and what the dialogue is and what the internal thought processes are but uh... uh... you don't have the plot so interestingly enough uh, both hard-twisted and the book i'm currently writing uh... i'm picking and choosing which true historical uh, incidents to include in the book but the basic uh... Basic arc of the book is predetermined, which isn't the case when you're writing pure fiction.
0: And if this book hard twists were pure fiction, you might have people push back against this. This too unlikely to occur, right? This is very remote area, still is, right? Uh, in southeastern Utah, and you have a psychotic drifter, a young thirteen year old. Um, you have a Sheriff William Oliver, one of the last of the legendary lawmen. Uh, this uh, Harry Goulding, who I guess uh, one of his claims to fame is he showed John Ford Monument Valley, brought him out there. And all these people converge in this area. And, oh, by the way, <laughs> hope I'm not giving it away too much in your afterward, Everett Roos is in this area about the same time.
1: Yeah, we can talk about that in a moment. But, but to your to your larger point, yeah, it's interesting that, that a guy just drifting through this very remote countryside um, would encounter uh, Bill Oliver. Uh, Bill Oliver, for those who aren't familiar with his background, was the sheriff of San Juan County. And his claim to fame was that uh, in 19, I believe it was 1923, um, uh, the last Indian War in the U.S. broke out. It was called Posey's War. Uh, And Bill Oliver was the central character in Posey's War. And just very quickly, what happened was Bill Oliver had arrested a couple of uh, young uh, men for having committed a minor crime. And they were on trial in the in the basement of the schoolhouse in uh, Blanding, uh, when uh, Posey, who was a well-known uh, Indian leader at that time, uh, orchestrated their escape on horseback. And one of the young boys grabbed Sheriff Oliver's gun, pointed at him, squeezed the trigger, and the gun jammed. Uh, they jumped on waiting ponies, they galloped off, Sheriff Oliver galloped after them in pursuit. uh, The young escapee got the gun working, turned around and shot Sheriff Oliver's horse out from under him. So in retaliation, Sheriff Oliver uh, rounded up every Ute man, woman, and child in the area, built a stockade in the middle of Blanding, uh, incarcerated 40 or so uh, Ute men, women, and children uh, for over a month in a tense standoff uh, trying to flush this fellow, uh, uh, Posey, and the two escaped convicts. Uh, to come back uh, and surrender. And the the incident was uh, a major media event at the time. It was reported all over the country. In fact, uh, in Europe as well, it was known as the last Indian war in America. And uh, Bill Oliver was the central character in that drama. And, of course, here we are now. He's Now he's 77 years old uh, in 1935 when he's murdered by Clint Palmer. So that's one uh, interesting uh, historical Uh, Tidbit. The other is, of course, Harry Goulding, who, you know, uh, famously brought John Ford to Monument Valley uh, to film. uh, Let's see, what was it? It was the uh, uh, the uh, the first John John Wayne's first movie, Stagecoach. They filmed Stagecoach in uh, Monument Valley, and they filmed other uh, movies there as well, including The Searchers. And she wore a yellow ribbon. And he became good friends with John Ford and with uh, John Wayne and a number of uh, Hollywood characters. So. Uh, it was interesting that one man drifting in this remote area would encounter two people who would who would themselves later become famous.
0: Now, Harry Goulding—he's a—he's a trader, a promoter. What, 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 what does he do?
1: He founded uh, Goulding's Trading Post in Monument Valley uh, in the early twenties. Um, he and his wife, uh, whom he called Mike, uh, her name was Lorena. Uh, they. Um, they founded this trading post, and uh, the trading post is, is there to this day. You can visit uh, Goulding's Trading Post Museum today, which was the original trading post. It's now become you know quite a—there's uh, an airfield, and there's a hotel, and quite a bit there. Um, but a, a number of famous people came to Monument Valley and stayed with Mike and Harry Goulding uh, and photographed the area, filmed the area, uh, painted the area. So they became uh, sort of ambassadors for— uh, for Monument Valley. And the reason that Monument Valley today is, is such an iconic landscape that's appeared in so many movies is largely because of Harry Goulding uh, taking a, a batch of photographs and driving out to Hollywood in 1937 and somehow wrangling a meeting with John Ford, showing him the pictures, and convincing him that this would be a great place for Hollywood to come and start doing some filming. Mm.
0: We're talking with Chuck Greaves, if you just joined us, his uh, historical novel, very interesting novel uh, called Hard Twist. It's based on historic fact, and all the people we're telling you about here, of course, uh, are are historical figures. And uh, we're talking about southeastern Utah Blanding area and what came to be known as the Johns Canyon Murders. The sheriff, um, Bill Oliver... And his, was his grandson, Norris Jake 25-year-old Schumer,
1: grandson, yes.
0: Were, were murdered by this uh, this drifter who had been recently released from Leavenworth, long history of crime, and he has with him a 13-year-old girl, uh, Lottie Garrett. Uh, she's the uh, center of, of the book. Um, and, and so into a, they end up, these two, um, end up in, in a range war.
1: Exactly. Um, at the time that they arrived looking for work, Harry Goulding, had about 1,200 head of sheep. And again, this is the Depression. Uh, he had so many sheep because he said it would have cost him more to, to drive the sheep to the railhead and sell them uh, than he would have gotten from the sale of the sheep. So he had amassed this, this large flock of sheep from trading with the Navajos over a period of years. And then in 1933, uh, the, the, the piece of land that lies between um, the San Juan River to the north and the Arizona border to the south. It's called the Paiute Strip. That section of land became part of the Navajo Reservation, and when it did, Harry Goulding's trading post all of a sudden was on the reservation. It hadn't been before. Uh, now it was what's called a school section, so it remained private property that he leased from the state of Utah. But it was surrounded by, uh, you know, twenty thousand acres of of um, of uh, the or more than that, of the uh, Navajo Reservation. And so he was told he had to get his sheep off the reservation. So he had uh, hired a couple of Navajo sheep herders to take his sheep north of the San Juan River, where, of course, he had no grazing rights at all, but he was desperate. So he just stuck them up there. And, of course, the cattlemen who who used that range as their winter range uh, were not happy to have have 1,200 sheep all of a sudden Uh, In their winter range. And so there were a number of conflicts uh, between uh, Goulding uh, and his sheep herders, who who would later become Palmer and and, and Lottie, uh, and uh, Bill Oliver primarily and his family, who had the grazing rights in Johns Canyon. And uh, there were some threats. Uh, uh, There was a a succession of of conflicts between uh, Palmer with uh, Goulding's sheep and uh, Oliver and his son and his grandson and their cattle. And it was those conflicts that ultimately led to the double murder.
0: Tell Tell me a bit about this country. This is a very remote country uh, and, and there's still traces. I, I'm not sure whether this was, whether you made this up or this was historical fact. I think it was historical fact. Um, Jake uh, Shumway's last words are written in a, in a cave there?
1: They are. What happened was um, Palmer was repeatedly driving the sheep into John's Canyon where there was water and, and, and good forage. Uh, and when he would do that, and if he were caught by Oliver, there would be a conflict. And Oliver would drive the sheep back out again. And what happened was, on a particular day, uh, they had the sheep in John's Canyon. Bill Oliver and his grandson showed up. Uh, words were exchanged. um Uh, Clint Palmer uh, shot Bill Oliver off his horse, uh, dragged his body to the edge of the San Juan River Gorge and threw him over the gorge. Uh, He then went looking for Norris Shumway, who at that point was hiding out. The next morning, he traced Norris Shumway to a little camp called the Seeps Camp. And during during the night, overnight, um, perhaps realizing that he was... he was being hunted and might be killed, uh, Jake Shumway carved his initials and the date, N.S., February 28, 1935, in a, in a boulder next to the cave where he'd been hiding. And to this day, if you know where to look, you can go out to Johns Canyon, and you can find that boulder and that inscription. Hmm.
0: Now this, of course, made headlines. And uh, it, it, this must have been fascinating, doing this, this research. you you looked up the archives' San Juan record library. There's a, something fascinating I had to note about, Southeastern Utah Oral History Project.
1: Yes. Uh, a, a gentleman named uh, Gary Shumway, Professor Emeritus at uh, Cal State Fullerton, uh, over a period of years would have his students from California come out and conduct uh, interviews of old-timers in and around San Juan County. And he amassed a, a, a trove of uh, tape-recorded oral history uh, recollections about life in that area uh, during the Depression. Uh, and uh, there are a number of um, of tape recordings of people recounting the, the Johns Canyon murder, uh, recounting Posey's War, and other historical events. So that was a trove of information, and uh, Gary Shumway became a friend and... and, and was very helpful to me in giving me access to that material, uh, and uh, that was part of what went into the research that I did for the Utah part of the story.
0: Now, at this point, um, this drifter has has killed two men, and I, I suppose then that they go on the run. But what do you what do you think is in Lottie's mind at this this point? Now she knows for sure that this man is capable of killing.
1: Well, there's more to it than that, Tom, because mm-hmm. at this point, Lottie had become pregnant, so uh, in the uh, winter of 34, 35, uh, she was pregnant. Uh, In November of 34, uh, she was having complications with her pregnancy and she went to uh, uh, Goulding's Trading Post for a short while. Then it was sent to Monticello to have her baby. So there was a period of time there between Thanksgiving of 1934 and early January of 1935, where palmer was out there in john's canyon alone uh... he built a, uh, a dugout to live in uh... and then uh, lottie who now was fourteen years old had her baby the baby died it was born two months premature it died about seven days after it was born and then palmer showed up uh, in g- early january and took lottie back to john's canyon to this dugout that he constructed and don't forget you know this part of the country, in winter, is it's, it's harsh, it's cold, It's there's snow, there's howling winds. Uh, and so this poor girl, who was 14, had just had and lost her baby, was now living in essentially a trench in the ground with a roof over it with this increasingly psychotic man who, uh, a very short time later, would commit uh, the double murder that he was most famous for
0: that's yeah that's just uh just incredible it, it's, it's harrowing really it's, it's harrowing yeah yeah you uh it, and so with, with of course we have the perspective that you have given us uh, so that it's hard perhaps for us to understand that when they get back to texas she also is arrested
1: yes it is um again this is this is a, this says more about law enforcement in the 1930s than, it, than anything else, but. Uh, they are arrested uh... they're wanted by the time they get back to texas and in fact they they return to uh... clint palmer's father's farm and his father says uh, he, he says to his father i'm hot in in utah and the father says no hotter than you are here in texas son and so they take off uh... heading for oklahoma to try to get across state lines uh... when they're chased down in a car chase and arrested um, what happens then is uh, Palmer stands trial for the murder of Lottie's father, uh, and Lottie ends up being uh, the star witness against him. And there's a fascinating uh, aspect to this as well. Uh, because the, uh, the body who had been found in December of 1934, the body of Lottie's father, it, at that point it was a skeleton. And uh, not knowing who the victim was, They had put the skeleton on display at the courthouse in Sulphur Springs, Texas, uh, basically saying, does anybody know who this person is? Uh, And so when Palmer did finally stand trial for the murder, it was called the skeleton murder trial, and it got quite a bit of publicity.
0: How did did they find out it was the father then?
1: Well, interestingly enough, uh, the father, and this is in the book, it's also true, the father had a crooked uh, pinky finger. He had broken it at some point in his life, and it was always crooked. And Lottie identified the skeleton because of the crooked
0: pinky finger. Wow! So that so, <laughs> I guess there's a realization here that, that that this man I've been with killed my father.
1: Uh, you know that realization happens at some point, and and whether it happens then or whether it it had happened earlier, again, was up to me as the author to to decide. And and I sort of, you know, she, I, the way I played it, she, she suspects something. And by the time they get back to Texas, she realizes that her father is never going to come back. And then, of course, uh, the prosecutor, of course, needs her uh, as a witness to, to prosecute Palmer. And so he, uh, in my telling of it at least, he, he butters her up, he promises her all these things. And then after the trial, uh, she then is herself prosecuted uh, for associating with a known criminal. She actually ends up being sentenced at age 14, to serve in the uh, girls reformatory in texas until age 21. Mm.
0: We'll tell more of this story or have chuck greaves tell more of this fascinating story uh, following a, a break the novel is hard twisted it's uh, it's based on um, on historic fact that we've been telling and part of the story takes place in utah southeastern utah in the blanding area we'll talk more about that as well and uh, sort of the rest of the story And uh, I'll ask um, Chuck Greaves to read uh, a portion from this historical novel as well. More following the
2: break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Write It Up, hosting Sunset on the Square in St. George, Friday, July 11th, showing Frozen at sunset, family games, dancing, and water balloon challenge every second and fourth Friday of the month through August and USU's Anthropology Museum in Old Main, presenting the new exhibit, When I Was a Child, Children and Childhood in Cross-Cultural Perspective, exploring the responsibilities of children in different cultures around the world. Open from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m., Monday through Friday.
1: This is Lloyd Berenson, director of the Bear River Health Department. When your car's check engine light is on, It means that something related to your car's emission system is not working right. This can be anything from a loose gas cap to a malfunctioning oxygen sensor. If your light comes on, it is important to get the problem fixed. Paying attention to your car's check engine light is important not only to re-register your vehicle, but also for car maintenance. A car with its systems properly maintained will run better, last longer, and pollute less. So the next time your check engine light comes on, get your car checked out.
0: It is better for you and your car.
2: The Bear River Health Department provided this content in response to Utah Public Radio listener questions about air pollution and health for our community engagement reporting project. To join our Public Insight Network and have a say in what we report, go to upr.org and click on Become a Source.
0: You're listening to Access Utah. time Tom Williams. We're talking with Chuck Reeves, author of the historical novel Hard Twisted. It's based on historic fact. A psychotic drifter uh, befriends a father and daughter, homeless, in Oklahoma, May of uh, 1934. He kills the father. That uh, will eventually result in a trial, 1935, back in Texas. Uh, and uh, Clint Palmer is his name. And uh, the novel centers on this uh, 13-year-old girl who then accompanies Clint Palmer. Her name is Lottie Garrett. They end up in southeastern Utah, and uh, two more murders uh, happen, and uh, then back in Texas in the trial. And uh, part of what Chuck Greaves is trying to do here is to to get into the mind of this 13-year-old girl who is a, a, uh, well, was a living person, very, very interesting Lottie Garrett's true saga of survival and redemption, he says, Chuck Reeves, one of the great untold stories of the American West. You're welcome to join us for this conversation. You can do that in two ways. You can call us at 1-800-826-1495. I'm interested to know if you live in this area, if you've heard of this, 1-800-826-1495 of this history. What do you think? And uh, Or you can join us by email to upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. So, Chuck Garrett, one of the great untold stories of the American West. What, Why, why so?
1: Oh, I just think it was a very compelling story. And, uh, again, it was one of those things that uh, it had never been put together in the sense that folks in Utah, in southeastern Utah, uh, knew about the double murder. Uh, it was somewhat notorious. And, and Bill Oliver had a very large family, and a number of his, his uh, relatives, of course, uh, remember it very well, uh, and then there was the whole Texas, Oklahoma uh, part of the story involving the skeleton murder trial uh, and the murder of uh, Dillard Garrett. Uh, but but really, the two stories had never been tied together. Uh, so I think when you put the whole the whole narrative together, beginning to end, it, it's quite an amazing story, uh, and and that's why I said what I did about it being one of the great untold stories of the American West.
0: This uh, Texas skeleton murder trial, of course, very famous. They they had a change of venue because this uh, it had become so notorious in in the area. I think they had to close the the trial. Um, you know, nobody admitted in uh, after after a certain point um, because of you know sensational. There's a skeleton involved. Um, it's, it, it's 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 uh, it's quite juicy. Uh, you start each chapter with uh, part of the transcript from the from the trial. Why would you do that?
1: Well, I have to tell you up front that those transcripts are fictitious.
0: Uh, Except, I think, for the last one.
1: Except for the last one, correct, which is the jury instruction. Uh, I I just thought it was a nice way to frame the story. Uh, So from the beginning, the reader knows that this is going to end up in court. The reader knows that Lottie is going to end up on the witness stand being grilled and cross-examined and having her veracity challenged and having her motives challenged. so I think that foreshadowing was, was, a, was a good technique to, to carry the reader along uh, throughout the story. I should say also, Tom, we've, we've made this sound like a very bleak novel, which in, in, in places it is. But I think it's also a hopeful novel, and as I say, a novel of redemption, because ultimately, uh, not to give too much away, but ultimately Lottie prevails. Uh, and as we learn in the afterward, in, in real life, uh, Lucille Garrett... Um, had a very happy life she ended up being married at age twenty one she ended up living uh, into her seventies, having a, a son whom she named Dillard after her father so all's well that ends well uh, and um, there is there are there is humor in the book there's pathos in the book there's there's more than just a, a, a bleak uh, grindingly bleak story okay
0: yeah, okay all right duly noted yes and, and it's it is fascinating very very well done and and just a a cracker of a story uh in fact you i think you you, you talked to family members she she apparently lottie didn't didn't understandably didn't talk much about this in later life
1: yeah i, I did speak with her, her or i exchanged a number of emails with uh, lottie's daughter-in-law her her son's wife and um, we exchanged some materials that we had um she didn't talk about right they, they didn't know all that much they knew that she had had this incident in her past Uh, There had been some uh, pulp detective magazines that had been written about the story. Again, one written about the Texas part of the story, one written about the Utah part of the story, but but none none combining the two or tying the two together. Uh, So they had some of that old material from the 1930s, and they were surprised that somebody would be interested in in her mother-in-law's life story. Uh, and at the time when I was contacting them, I had not published a book, so I was just this guy who was going to be writing a book. And uh, of course, it turned out that the book—you know—the book was very, very well reviewed. It was a big hit in 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 the UK. Uh, it won the, a number of awards. It was a finalist for the Oklahoma Book Award in fiction. And I should add here, Tom, that it comes out in paperback tomorrow.
0: All right. Um, by, by the way, we're talking with Chuck Greaves. The, the novel is uh, hard-twisted based on historic fact. Here's a quote, uh, I think it's from the blur, but a uh, young girl's coming of age in a brutal world in which she herself was but a thing adrift, like some speck of flotsam that rose or sank at the whim of forces beyond human uh, sense or reckoning. In the end, th- this this turns out hopeful. She, she did go on to have a good life.
1: She did. She did. Uh, d-
0: despite very traumatic events.
1: Absolutely. Again, which to my mind makes it a story of redemption. She really, you know, Clint Palmer ended up uh, dying in, in uh, Huntsville Penitentiary in 1969. Uh, and as he lay dying in, in prison, Lottie was having a, you know, a wonderful life uh, as a free woman in Texas. So she had the last laugh.
0: How do you think she was able to do that?
1: Gosh, I don't know. I think, the, you know, the human the human spirit has a tremendous capacity for, for compartmentalization and for healing. And, you know, I'm sure uh, these were hugely tragic events for her, but she was able to somehow soldier on with her life. Hmm.
0: Um, I want to talk a little bit about people are fascinated by Everett Roos, at least in the West. I don't know, you know, around the world, but we, we you know, you have Everett Roos books coming out all the time. I was just flabbergasted. I got to the afterward, and Everett Roos is in this same area within a few miles.
1: Yeah, the reason I made the connection was uh, when I was doing research, uh, there was uh, an issue of the San Juan Record newspaper that reported the double murder. It was a a banner headline that said, uh, Double Murder Shocks County. And in reading the story, I noticed that on the next column over on the front page, down at the little bottom was a little item that said, uh the, the remains uh, or, or the, the camp and some burrows of a young artist uh, were also found uh, uh, near Davis Gulch. And uh, a search has been conducted, but, but nobody's found any sign yet of the young artist. Didn't even mention his name. Well, I thought that was fascinating. And then when I started doing the, the chronology, it turned out, you know, Everett Roos Everett disappeared in November of 1934 in Davis Gulch. And, you know, they found the the famous Nemo uh, 1934 graffito uh, in an Anasazi granary there in Davis Gulch. And it wasn't until some years later that it was reported uh, by Ken Slight, actually, a a river guide, that he had found a Nemo uh, graffito actually uh, 30-some miles further east from Davis Gulch in Grand Gulch, um, I know a man named uh, uh, Fred Blackburn who actually uh, uh, etched both graffiti and compared both graffiti and compared them. And according to Fred, uh, Fred Blackburn, they are made by the same hand. So, if you accept the fact that, that uh, Everett Ruth actually was heading east and had gotten at least thirty miles further east. Uh, along the north uh, rim of the San Juan River, Uh, if he'd kept going another 15 or 20 miles, he would have walked into John's Canyon. And again, this is November uh, or or early December of '34. That's the time period when Palmer was there by himself, when Lottie was off having her baby. So there was a period of about uh, a month and a half where Palmer was there, heavily armed, dangerously psychotic, is it possible that Everett Roos walked into his camp um, I, you know I have no evidence of that, and I leave that to historians. but when you talk about what did happen to Everett Roos, I think you have to put that uh, on the list of possibilities.
0: This is an example and this you know all over the the countryside, if you were to go hiking in John's canyon today you'd'd you'd, you know you're hiking through all of this history. I don't you probably think about that when you go hiking in some of these places
1: absolutely. And, and again, uh, if you go to Jones Canyon tomorrow, it's just as remote and just as beautiful as it was in 1934 or, or in 1834 or, 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 you know, ever. I mean, it's, it's a remote, beautiful country, and, uh, and the evidence of human activity is, is, is negligible. I mentioned that the, the Palmer dugout is still there. You can see the Palmer dugout. You can see the rock, if you know where to look, where Norris Shumway uh, inscribed his epitaph. Uh, but otherwise, it, it's, it's just beautiful, uh, wild country.
0: I wonder if you uh, have a passage from the book you'd like to, to read for us.
1: I'd be happy to, Tom. Um, I should say, going in, that the book is quite literary in its, in its style. Um, the scene I'll read uh, takes place early in the, in the first chapter of the book. Uh, it's after uh, Clint Palmer has picked up uh, Lottie and her father hitchhiking and dropped them off. And this is uh, Lottie and her father back in camp that night after having first met Clint Palmer. They built a fire in the lee of the ruined house, and her father squatted before it, stirring red flannel hash with a spoon. The temperature had dropped with the sun, and she wore his mackinaw now like a mantle while he sat at his heels and rubbed his hands and warmed them over the skillet, the tumbled walls around them shifting and changing, moving inward and then outward again, as though breathing in the soft orange glow like a living thing. Embers popped, running and skittering with the wind. To the north, she saw other fig, other fires speckling the void, and she studied their positions as an astronomer might chart the nighttime heavens. "'More tonight,' she said. Her father followed her gaze. "'These is hard times, honey. Ain't nobody hirin.' He's not here in Hugo anyways. I was thinking I might light me a shuck to Durant for Durant come sunrise. Man said a mill there was looking for hands. Miss Upchurch could mind you for a day. I don't need no minding. He paused and studied her burnished profile, her cheek and lashes luminous in the fire glow. Tell you what, Pen, you can mind Miss Upchurch. Haul her water and such. You tell her I'll be back by nightfall. She wielded a broken twig, tracing random patterns in the dirt. Somewhere beyond the firelight, a car passed on the highway. Who was that man? Just a man. He said he knowed you. He didn't mean like that. More like my kind is what he meant. What's your kind? Her father stirred the skillet and paused and stirred it again. He tapped the spoon on the iron rim. Only the good Lord knows what's in a man's heart, Lottie. Happy is the man who follows not the counsel of the wicked, nor walks in the way of sinners. He wiped his nose with his wrist. That there is from Psalms. She poked her stick into the fire and withdrew it and blew out the flame. Then she wrote a secret in the air and studied it and watched it disappear in the ravenous wind.
0: That's uh, Chuck Greaves reading from his historic novel, Uh, Hard Twisted. It's uh, just out in paperback. uh, Takes place uh, in part, in large part, in southeastern Utah, uh, Blanding area. Just have a couple of minutes left, um, and in addition to reading uh, your book, you, you you do capture very well the, the time and these places. By the way, nineteen thirties uh, depression era America, America, so Texas, Oklahoma, uh, New Mexico, Colorado, and Utah. Um, it it seem you mentioned some books and some people. I guess, in our case, some books that we could uh, go look at to to do some of the same research that you did. They sounded very interesting in addition to your book. Doris, Valley's uh, Looking Back Around the Hat is one of them.
1: That's one of them. Uh, If you're interested in in the history of the uh, Mexican hat area, that's a good book. Um, Gosh, uh, I read a number of books for a number of different purposes in writing this book, uh, in part, for example, to, to... learn how people talked in 1934, Texas, I mean, uh, so books like that. Um, To learn about the history of, for example, Harry Goulding. There were a couple of good books that were written about Harry Goulding. Uh, One I would recommend is a book called Tall Sheep, written by a man named Moon. Um, That was an excellent book. Um, To learn about Harry Goulding's life, uh, for me, it was very helpful to learn about what was happening uh, in that area called the Paiute Strip back in the 1930s. Interestingly enough, in that book, uh, in Tall Sheep, uh, Harry Goulding is a very loquacious man. He talks about his life in great detail. The one thing he refuses to talk about to to his biographer was the John's Canyon murder. And uh, what what actually happened was after the murders of Bill Oliver and Norris Shumway, the the folks in in southeastern Utah. Uh, the community living north of the, of the San Juan River blamed Harry Goulding uh, for the murder of Bill Oliver. Uh, the, the, the popular story at the time was that uh, Goulding had these sheep he had to find a place for, so he hired a hired gun to come out and, uh, and provoke uh, uh, the local cattlemen. And sure enough, this hired gun uh, killed Bill Oliver and his grandson. Uh, So the folks around Blanding, Bluff, uh, uh, Mexican Hat, uh, uh, Monticello, there was bad blood between them and Harry Goulding for a number of years. Hmm. Um, And uh, Harry felt that he had done nothing wrong, that he himself had been a victim. He didn't know what Clint Palmer's background was. Clint Palmer, in fact, after committing the murders, uh, came to the trading post and robbed Harry Goulding at gunpoint of his money and his car. And that's how they escaped back to Texas. So there was no, no love lost between uh, Goulding and Palmer. But Goulding was blamed for for Palmer's crimes. And that animosity lasted uh, for most of the rest of Harry Goulding's life, actually.
0: Very interesting. We'll have to leave it there. And, of course, you can find out much more in the book. Well worth the read. It's uh, called Hard Twisted. And the author is uh, Chuck Greaves, out in uh, paperback. By the way, you can uh, find out a lot more at the website, which is chuckgreaves.com. Chuck Reeves, uh, a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Tom. That's Access Utah for today. Hope you enjoyed our encore presentation of that conversation. You can find much more at our website, upr.org. And hope you'll join me next uh, or tomorrow. Uh, we will revisit another conversation, this time from April of this year. We'll be looking at Mary Roche's interesting and fun book, Gulp, Adventures on the Elementary Canal which explores the much maligned but vital tube from mouth to rear that turns food into nutrients that keep us alive. Why doesn't the stomach digest itself? Can wine testers really tell a $10 bottle from a $100 bottle? Why do Americans eat on average no more than 30 different foods on a regular basis? Those and other questions answered tomorrow on the program. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio.